So, uh, picking back up in 2 Corinthians this evening, and um, we, we finished uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5 last week, and so we're going to jump back in in chapter 11. I'm a little bit, um, I, I have a little, little tinge of OCD, and so it's always, it's always uh, strange to me sometimes to stop in the middle of a chapter. You know, there, every part of me wanted to just keep on going, but really there's two separate thoughts in chapter 5. And of course, the first thought sets up the second thought. And the first thought is that we have an eternal hope that the uh, temporary nature of these bodies is not indicative of what our, our hope in the future is. Our hope in the future, uh, it is though unseen, is secure and it's firm and it's unbreakable and unshakable. Um, and it's guaranteed, and the Holy Spirit is, is a deposit on that guarantee. And so Paul then says, you know, this is how we walk then. We walk as people who understand that what is, what is unseen is far greater than what is seen, and, that, and, and with the knowledge that because of what's been given through Christ, um, all, we, along with everyone else, will receive what is due us. We'll be held accountable by God. And so this, this is to be a compelling um, not argument, but just a compelling uh, statement to say to the Corinthian people, so we are on a mission. And he, what he's doing is he's saying, this is, this is what my motive was when I came to you. This is what my intent was when I came to you. There's all kinds of accusations about me floating around, but this is my mission. But he has, at this point in the book or in the letter, he's established very well his defense, and so now it's starting to read more like a sermon. He's, he's explaining his motives, but his motive is Christ, and he's empowered and filled with the Spirit. And so as he does that, what he does is he preaches the gospel. And so these are, these are some fun verses uh, to, to talk about um, as he talks about his mission and in turn then speaks about our mission and ministry and message that we've been given by God. So what, he, what he's going to now say is he's going to say, while our, while our verdict has already been pronounced and we've already been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing that our reward is paid for, we're called to love as Christ loves. And if we truly love people, then we will be concerned about their eternal destiny. We'll be concerned that they also receive the guarantee of the Holy Spirit and know the hope and power that comes from salvation through Christ and power through the filling of the Holy Spirit. So that's what he says in the first part of verse 11. He says, since then, since then meaning since we have an eternal hope, since we know that we're being held accountable by God, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. We try to persuade people of the same thing. He's saying, this is what we did when we came to you, Corinth, and this also church is our mission. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. We are on a mission to tell others. And then he's, he's, he goes back to his defense and he says, what we are, what, what we and my fellow workers are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. So Paul, he's revisiting the accusations of his opponents and declaring, no, my mission was to come to you and preach this gospel of our eternal hope and this gospel that we will be held accountable to God. That was our mission and our motive. And he says, he says in verse 13, he says, listen, if it seems like I keep going back to this, he says, if, if we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. 
and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. So the verb he uses for out of, out of our mind is uh, existemi, which means to become separated from something. So he's saying, if it seems that I keep coming away from logic and I keep coming away from control, self-controlled thinking to revisit these accusations, if, I, if it seems that I'm ecstatic about this, it's simply because what I'm trying to tell you is that I'm not, is that I'm not crazy, that I didn't come to you with selfish motive, and these accusations are a lot like what people made about Jesus, that he's crazy, he's just trying to build a kingdom for himself. Later in uh, Acts chapter 26, Festus accuses Paul of the same thing. He says, you're out of your mind. You're just trying to create some kind of cultish following. He's deflecting criticism, though, by pointing out his commitment to the Corinthians. He says, no, no, no. I'm not out of my mind. I'm in my right mind to be so passionate for your sake, is what he says. He's not mad. He's passionate and urgent in his mission to tell others. Now let's hear about that mission. He says, for Christ's love compels us. It pushes us forward. It launches us out. It it, uh, nudges and prods and goads and calls because we are convinced, listen to this is just theology, we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died because Jesus died, therefore we died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. If you're familiar with Paul, you're familiar with this language. What I think is really interesting is the word for Christ's love. He says Christ's love compels us can actually refer to both the love we receive from him, that is the love that he showed on the cross, um, but also our own love for Christ. He's saying we received love from Christ, and then he bears that out in his, in his uh, explanation. He says, here's the love we received from Christ. He died for all people. He died for all people. One died for all. Jesus died for the sins of all mankind. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, it says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one God, and there's one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, If anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that's a, this is a point that Paul, is make, that, make, that Paul is making that's made all through the New Testament. First of all, we receive Christ's love. One died for all. But then, secondly... We have a love for Christ. When he talks about Christ's love compelling us, it's not just that we've received, but now we also have a call to love him back. Just as one died for all, all died. One died as a representative of all his people, therefore all of them are deemed to have died in that person as their representative. This is why the first step is baptism. This is the same thought is presented in Romans 6, 3, and 4. You present your life to Christ, you receive the, his love and forgiveness of sin, then we die with him, Romans 6 says. We're buried with him in baptism. That's the first step in living for Christ. It's what Jesus taught. Go into all the world. Make disciples. How? 
baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And then thirdly, he says, the, the way that we live for Christ, we shouldn't live for ourselves anymore. Because how can you live for yourself if you've died to yourself? There's no part of self that, that has any place in Christ, right? John the Baptist puts it this way. He says, I must decrease, he must increase. Self must continually decrease, and Christ must increase. And so we should live for Christ. He's our life now. We've been united with him. Remember that phrase, united with him, because it'll be important later. In baptism, and then we've been raised with him to newness of life. Our life is now hidden with Christ in God. So self is hidden behind Jesus. Have you ever heard a pastor say or pray, God, hide me behind this pulpit? What, what we're really saying is, hide, hide me between, behind Christ in God. That, that, that there would be no self in the message. That it would be your word and your spirit and your power that awakens the scriptures and moves and compels people. In fact, there is no self that can compel people to salvation. What compels people is Christ's love for us and our love for him. Working in concert. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ is your life. He is your present. He is your future. He is your hope of glory. He's the only meaning your life will ultimately have. So Paul's saying, that's what compelled us when we came to you, and likewise you embrace him fully now and share him with others. And he's going to say, "This this is how it impacted our lives. From now on, We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, I want to, first of all, I want to to hone in on this phrase, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Paul says that because Christ died for everyone, I now see everyone in a different light. Regarding people from a worldly point of view looks like making our first judgments about people from the various categories that we have set up in our world. So we make judgments based on male and female. Have you, have you noticed in our culture, there's this, you, I know you've, you've heard this, there's an emphasis on identity in our culture. Identity is huge. You talk to young people, and they're one of the cause, I don't think they understand it, but I think a lot of young people are really, really passionate about identity. I don't think they fully understand the war that's being waged there, but they're very passionate about identity. That the world, a worldly point of view wants self to rise to the surface and wants to assign an identity to self and then say, no one can assault my identity. No one can take myself. And myself is in my label. It's in my title. It's in the way that I see myself and the way that I feel about myself, and that's my identity, and you can't take it. But what if, what, if we, what if we just read? Our identity is not in self. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So when we talk about not viewing people from a worldly point of view, Christians, we need to be careful to not also get caught up in the categories. Male, female, heterosexual, homosexual, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, white collar, working class, unemployed, married, single, living together, conservative, moderate, liberal, Republican, Democrat, child, teen, young adult, middle-aged, senior adult, and just old. (laughs) 
is I don't think there's anybody that's there yet here. They're senior adults, but maybe not old. <laughs> Somebody's pointing fingers at Eugene. <laughs> I'm not going to say who. Yeah. <laughs> we pigeonhole people into our own categories, and then we can't see beyond them. It's a subconscious thing I've seen. That's what a worldly point of view is. Jesus sees them differently. He sees God at work in them. I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, regardless of where you're at, and I think uh, 1 Corinthians 6 is a great uh, passage to look at. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he says, that's what you once were. You were idolaters and adulterers and fornicators, and you, but now you are washed. <laughs> and Paul, that's what Paul is saying when he says, I don't regard people from a worldly point of view. They're either waiting, they're, they're not, God hasn't yet completed his work in them, or he has completed his work in them. Either way, God is doing a new thing through Jesus Christ because Christ died for all. Christ died for all. So I don't regard people from any other point of view except for the fact that God either wants to work in them or already is working in them. Oh, that's good. God either wants to work in them or he already is working in them. That's how we should view people. When we, when we see broken people, when we see behavior that grieves us, angers us, frustrates us, Christian, what would it look like to, say, to not hone in on the identity, but instead to say, that's a person God wants to work in, and I'm, I'm going to pray and love to that end. Christ's love for me, I once was that, an idolater, a fornicator, a drunkard, whatever. I once was that, but now I'm washed. And so I'm not going to regard them from a worldly point of view. In fact, I was thinking about this. I thought Paul once regarded Christ as a heretical Jewish rabbi. You thought about that? When Paul was Saul, when he was on the Damascus road with an order to imprison more Christians and to kill more Christians, Paul regarded Christ, or Saul regarded Christ as a heretical Jewish rabbi. He was thankful that Jesus was executed for his sins, not because it gave him forgiveness, but because he was just glad that that nuisance was no longer perverting the Jewish faith, right? And subverting the Jewish God. And he saw his followers as dangerous subversives who needed to be stopped at any cost. But when he was outside of Damascus, just a little ways outside of Damascus, everything changed. Jesus appeared to him. God's work appeared to him. And Paul cried out, who are you, Lord? And the answer he received turned his world upside down. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that moment on, Paul had a paradigm shift, and he went from a person that God wanted to work in to a person that God had already worked in. The working hypothesis by which he evaluated his world was dramatically altered, and so now he saw everything in a new light. And here's what happens. When, pe when people become a new creation when God's work takes place. They, they don't just find Jesus and, and, and are rescued. They don't just get religion when they, when they find him and are rescued by him. They are changed in a fundamental way. Paul calls them in verse 17, a new creation. And the Greek word means the result of a creative act. And one of the things that is a core tenet of the Christian faith is that Yahweh is the creator God. Yahweh is the creator God. There's, there's all kinds of discussion about the science of how that occurred, but there can be no argument that Yahweh is creator God. And so when we read that also the Christian 
is a new creation. That is a result of Creator God. And the way that the New Testament talks about this creative act, it says that we're born again, born anew, born from above, made alive, we're quickened, regenerated, rebirthed, washed, renewed, sealed. Those are all words that are related to this Greek word here in, chap- in chapter 5, verse 17. Um, all across the New Testament, from the Gospel of John to the book of Ephesians to Titus, uh, we, read these, we read these titles about God's creative work in us, making us a new creation. And we Christians believe that when Jesus saves us and puts his Holy Spirit in our hearts, that a life-altering change has taken place, a new life has been formed by the Creator, which is being nurtured by the Holy Spirit. So, we're going to talk a little bit about holiness tonight, even as we talk about the salvation, the atoning salvation of Jesus. See, when I, when I think about this new life being nurtured by the Holy Spirit, um, I encounter young Christians and seasoned Christians alike who, are, who experience varying degrees of discouragement at either... Um, immature, uh, an immature lack of fruit or little fruit, or a frustrating battle where they haven't seen the considerable change they hoped for in a particular uh, struggle in their life, or a season. A lot of times with seasoned saints, I'll I'll hear discouragement about a season that feels dry, right? It feels dry. It doesn't necessarily mean it is dry, but it feels dry. But what what I read here that the, there is this sudden work that God does for those who are in Christ where we become a new creation. And so in that very moment, think about God said, let there be light, and there was what? Light? Did, was, it, was, was there uh, any doubt about the light coming into play? Was there a long pause and an uncertainty of whether or not creation would respond to the Creator's command? Or when you read that, do you hear God, God said, let there be light, and there was light, right? <laughs> he, flipped, he flipped a switch with the snap of his thumb, right? There was time. There, was per, there were the parameters for all life within the spoken command of God. From the Word of God came all life, right? Likewise, when God declares over you that the righteousness of Christ is yours because you believed there was life. And so you can feel discouraged, but that doesn't necessarily speak of the reality of what God is doing in you. We sing all the time, even though I can't see it, He's working. Even though I can't feel it, He's working. Because we are, we're, we're feely people, right? And we live in an age that really wants to glorify feelings. I'm not sure this is the only age that's ever done that, but it's a, it's a repeated cycle in human history that we want to glorify our feelings. And so when we feel dry, we then begin to think that God's work in our lives is dry. But that's not the case. God spoke over you that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And not just will be, but is being saved. So now we, our job is to just continue to walk on this new course. God has changed you on the inside like this. And now we cooperate with Him and we allow the rest of ourselves to be shaped to the inward work that He's working out of us by His Holy Spirit. That's holiness. Transformed in an instant and then shaped 
over the course of a lifetime, right? It's a process, it takes time, but the creative work of the Holy Spirit has been spoken into existence by the Word of God for all who believe. So verse 18, um, he says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So first of all, the origin of all this new life can be none other than God himself. He's creator God. Only God's creative power can explain the recreation of people who once lived according to the sinful nature into people who live for Christ. It's his initiative. He did it. He started it. It was his dream. It was his plan. It was his vision. It's his world. It's his creation. And it's also his work. He completed the initiative that he began. He is, faithful. He, is, he is faithful to complete the work he's begun in you, right? So it's his initiative and it's his work. All this is from God. Who then did the work? He reconciled us to him through Christ. He sent Jesus. He came in the form of Jesus, in the form of a man, to restore us to him. Not the other way around. A lot of times we talk about reconciliation as though now I can have a relationship with God as though like we're pulling God down to us. But actually, the reconciliation is a Godward process. We are being drawn up into Him. And that's a small distinction, but it's an important distinction. We are not pulling down God to make Him more like us. He came into the world to make us more like Him. And that's what it means when it says reconciling us to himself through Christ. He's pulling us upward back to, and if, if I could just for a minute to get real Old Testament theological, he's taking us back up the holy hill. Jerusalem is a city on a hill. Eden was a city on a hill, is what we're to understand from the Old Testament writers. And so uh, that's why we think of heaven as upward. We're being pulled upward to God's holy city and to his holy character. He's reconciling us to himself. Now, that word reconcile, it means a couple things. First of all, to exchange hostility for restored relationship. So there is a restoration of relationship, but it's not God being restored to us as though there's some kind of divinity in us apart from him. It's us being restored to him. But then also to balance accounts to balance accounts. Reconciliation is a cousin of atonement, okay? Reconciliation is, comes when something is atoned or paid for, when the accounts are brought into balance. And that's what God has done for us. And we see this in this powerful phrase, not counting men's sins against them. This is intensely awesome. So the word here for sins is paraptoma which means transgressions. It's different than the word that's used in the rest of the New Testament, or in most places in the New Testament, which is hamartius, or hamartius, depending on uh, how you like to pronounce your Greek. So paraptoma means transgressions. It means, um, you know, you've heard the, heard the, John, the Wesleyan definition of sin, a willful transgression against the known law of God. This Greek word would be the closest relative to that definition. It's, uh, it's, it's our propensity to continually... Have you ever, when you look at the Old Testament and you say, 
Why does Israel keep sinning even though they have the presence of God? That's transgression. Okay? That's, they, they know the law of God. They know the presence of God, and yet there is a propensity to rebel. And that rebellion is parapton. Okay? Um, and then uh, Hamartius or Hamartius speaks of uh, a, more of a condition. It's our, it's, our, it's our condition that we are bad archers, so to speak. We are off the mark. We're off the path. We walk a crooked course. It's, it's a condition that needs healing. Okay? So transgressions is, uh, transgressions is a mind, is a mindset that needs transforming and hamartias is a condition that needs healing. Um, let's look at it this way. So using a broken relationship, a broken marriage relationship because of adultery as an example, okay? So the wayward heart, the wayward eyes of a cheating spouse, because what does Jesus say? That when we lust after someone, we've already committed adultery with them in their hearts. Adultery doesn't occur in an instant with no previous thought with no previous fantasy, with no previous indulgence. It occurs because it builds. Because we, as James 1 says, well, desire desire impregnates us, and then we give birth to death, right? Um, so, hey, Martius is this, it's this condition that we have wayward eyes, that we can't help, that, that, well, not that we can't help, on our own we can't help. We have this tendency to want to look and to linger, we have this tendency to want to go up on the roof and look across at the bath, at the house across the way, right? Um, that's Hamartius. The adultery is paraptoma. And not just the singular instance, but the continued returning to the hotel room. The continued re- that's, that's transgression. That's to do sin over and over and over again. And so f- here's what's interesting. So for reconciliation to, con- to occur, the spouse who's been offended against must be willing, or the, the spouse who's offended must be willing to forsake their philandering ways, right? There has to be a willingness to stop rebelling. There has to be a repentance that says, I'm going to turn and go the other way. But then there also has to be a healing of their tendency to, though they're walking towards the cross, to want to look over their shoulder like Lot's wife, Right? Uh, there has to be a healing. And then in order for that healing to occur, occur, in order for that reconciliation to occur, the spouse who's been offended has to be willing to forgive and continue to offer grace for this, to just, eyes forward, honey. <laughs> eyes forward, honey. Keep your eyes on the cross. There's got to be reconciliation in all hearts. The accounts have to come into balance for healing to occur and then ultimately for a transformation of minds. You can't have your mind transformed until your heart has been healed, right? As long as, as, long as you are going to continue looking over your shoulder, you're eventually going to fall back into rebellion. So here's what's interesting. Here, Paul says that uh, Jesus... Nor, now, we, we always think of the sin nature, that that's what God's prevenient grace stood over. But here, Paul says, no, his prevenient grace also stands over our tendency to continue to rebel. So that when you accept the healing at the altar, when you accept uh, the forgiveness of all the sins that you've transgressed prior to that moment, His prevenient grace continues to walk with you 
as you learn about that healing, as he, he walks with you and he keeps tipping your head towards the front, he, he forgives and he for, continues to forgive the acts of sin afterwards. Now, I'm going to explain a little bit about that, so hold on. But uh, I find the promise here really, really encouraging. And, and a younger me would have done well to understand this because I so often was so discouraged about what seemed to be an inability to bear fruit in areas of previous struggle. Even though I had given it to God at the altar, I had surrendered all of my life. But when I, if I could have just known some of these things, to read here, God does not count our paratoma, our transgressions against us, because he regards us from a different point of view. Remember verse 16? He regards, that point of view is we are in Christ. God has begun a work of new life in him or her. And so I don't see the transgressions. I see the payment. I see that Christ has spoken for that child and that child has said, I am putting my trust in Christ. What an encouraging word for the person who's struggling to shed the baggage of a past life. To know that God counts what Jesus did over what you did, and to know that that is, a, that is a preview of the final judgment you'll receive in eternity. That if you continue to walk in faith with Him, you will eventually share literally the righteousness of Christ, but for now, Christ is paying for it. And, now, and, and let that wash over you for a minute. My professor in college, Dr. Fine, he said, I don't know that we have uh, I don't know that we have literal biblical ground to stand on this, but he said, I, I, it hit me one day in, in my prayer time that Jesus, being outside of time, continues to lay down his life for sin. Not that, not, that, not that he's literally still dying, but him being outside of time and forgiving all sin, even in the future, is still standing, uh, bearing the weight of that sin in some sense, and that our minds can't even begin to fathom because we're inside of time. And so we think of that moment as a singular moment. But Jesus paid for sin for all time. He continues to stand before the Father and say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you think, do you think that maybe his scars tingle a little bit? That, that, that's what Dr. Fine said. He, he said, I wonder, I wonder sometimes if when I sin... His scars tingle a little bit, and yet he continues to be obedient and say, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Forgive him too. So that's not necessarily strong theology, but that's a powerful thought. It's a powerful thought. And this idea that, that God stands in grace toward our transgressions, it's not in conflict with a holy life. So let's turn over to Colossians to unpack this a little bit more. Colossians chapter 1, first of all, one of my 10 favorite passages in Scripture right here, verses 15 through 23. Verse 15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him, verse 16, all things were created. Verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he has supremacy. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself 
all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now listen to this. This is where, we, where, we, where it gets uh, pertinent to our stuff. Once you, were relate, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Same, same Greek word here, paraptoma, your evil behavior, your transgressions. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Now take note. Did you do anything there? No. Your transgressions are reconciled. They're put into balance through Christ's physical body, through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Now, here's, here's the call. So that's Christ's love for us. Now, just like in 2 Corinthians, we also have a love for Christ that compels us. So he says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the behavior. Oh, no, that's not the word. Not, not moved from the behavior. That's not the word. No, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So we recognize that the Spirit empowers us to live as Christ, but where we fall short, God continues to blot out our transgressions. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We continue to walk with Him firm in the faith, established and firm. But when you fall, do not be discouraged, saint. Instead, look to the cross because it stands eternally. All the sin is covered in the blood. And just receive that hope. Hold on to that hope held out in the gospel. And keep walking it out. Okay, so that's our transgressions. Now let's talk about our hamartias. We just go to chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity or of, of the Yahweh God lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. He's talking about demons and sin and princes and such there. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, the hamartias, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Remember, circumcision signifies covenant, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, your hamartias, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations. Another translation says, having canceled our indebtedness that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Public spectacle because the cross was their tool. And he turned it into a tool of victory. Death, where is your sting? Right? Where is your victory? So what, that's, what that says is that the healing process has begun and that all of our indebtedness to the sinful nature has already been canceled. And now our job is simply to walk compelled by that truth. So we don't stay down and beat ourselves up under condemnation and accusation. We get back up, we receive the cross, and we continue walking it out. Death is defeated, hemartias overcome. We walk in faith. And when we finish the race, our final judgment will be the same as his. You don't have to finish first place in the, in the, in the marathon. You, you've seen those videos of, of the folks 
who don't finish first place because they help one another to the finish line. That's what we're doing. We aren't necessarily the all-stars, but we are walking faithfully to finish our race. And when we see a brother or sister fall down, we help them and we walk with them because we don't, we're not concerned about how we finish because Christ is first. He's the firstborn of the, resurre- of, 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 those who, of the dead. He's the firstborn of those of the resurrection of the dead. So we just are finishing the race that he's already won. So good. Verse 19, continuing, he says, so that's his ministry to us. Now what does he say? He says, and he has committed to us the message of that ministry. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So God is the chief reconciler by sending his sons to bear our sins, but now he delegates to us a role in the reconciliation process. There's three roles. First of all, we are ministers of reconciliation. The word ministry in verse 18 is diakonia, or diakonia, diakonia, which is uh, where we get our word deacon. You have been given a ministry. This has been ordained by God for all people. This is not the same as ordained ministry, but all people have been ordained by God to the ministry of reconciliation. Um, there's not, the, the best way to think about this in American terms is uh, the Secretary of State. Okay? The Secretary of State goes out from the White House to represent the White House's interests all over the world, right? It, the Secretary of State moves pieces on a chessboard around to represent and benefit the interests of the United States of America, right? In England, that same person is called a foreign minister. So now we're getting a little closer. You're ministering the interests of the kingdom. That's what it means to have a ministry of reconciliation. We move the pieces of our lives around, the opportunities of the Spirit that God has given us in order to benefit the interests of the kingdom. And the interest of the kingdom is what? It's reconciliation, which means to pull people up to God. So that's our ministry. We have a, we've been given a ministry. That's our first role, to pull people up to God. And then, uh, then we've been given a message, a message of real, uh, reconciliation. The word message in the Greek means uh, a communication whereby the mind fr- finds expression and word. Okay? So who is the Word? Who's the Word? Yeah, Jesus is the Word of God. And so we, what, is, what has been committed to us is an expression of God's mind. The expression of God's mind is Jesus. So our message that's been given to us is to express the same Jesus through our lives. That's the message that he, that's been given to us. In fact, uh, Eugene Peterson, he puts it this way. He says, God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. That's what Jesus came to do, right? He said, I can, on, I can only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. He said, I can only say what I hear my Father in heaven, what I've heard my Father in heaven say. That's our message. And then lastly, he says, our role is as ambassadors of Christ. An ambassador lives in a foreign country, but is charged with communicating those who they represent, uh, their words and their positions. And so an ambassador does not operate in silence. This is not just a life lived, but it is a voice who bears his kingdom's messages. 
And, and listen to the urgency of it. It says, we are ambassadors on Christ's behalf as though God were making His appeal through us. As though God were making His appeal through us. And that word appeal, it means to beg. It means, it, that's the intensity with which we are bringing the message to beg. We, he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He's saying to the church, be reconciled to God. Don't get caught up in, in arguments about motives and who's the best preacher and teacher. That's what he's saying to the church. But for us, we, this is our mission as ambassadors of Christ, of Christ is to come with this single-minded, kingdom-oriented uh, purpose and mission that says, everywhere I go, how can I represent my master's interests? We may not be foreign missionaries like the Apostle Paul representing Jesus abroad, but we are Jesus' personal representatives in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, and in our families. When we share the good news with people, we are conveying Jesus' own personal love and authority for that person. This delegation of love and authority is awesome. Listen to these verses that go with it. Peace be with you. This is, these are the words of Jesus, John 20, 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Ministry, message, ambassador. Luke 10, 16, and also Matthew 10, verse 40, both say, he who listens to you listens to me. Jesus speaking to his disciples. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That's the, God's own love and authority for the people that God sends us to. John 13, verse 20, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Perhaps we would prefer to be quiet rather than take upon ourselves this kind of responsibility. But if we remain quiet, then the kingdom of God has a faithless representative in the workplace, in the family, in the community. As inadequate as we may feel for this task, we cannot bear the name of Christ with authenticity unless we're willing to represent him as his ambassadors. We have to be willing to speak up to his name and his glory. Verse 21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let's just look at the different pieces of this amazing verse. First of all, Jesus had no sin. This is an important, this is an important tenet of the Christian faith. When we talk to people about, well, what's so special about Jesus relative to other people? Well, he claimed to be God and he lived like God. He had no sin. He had no sin. Uh, the Scripture affirms that Jesus had no sin in Himself to atone for. Um, I'm just going to give you, you can look these up on your own time. John 14, verse 30. Hebrews 4, verse 5. Hebrews 7, verse 26. 1 Peter 2, verse 22. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 3, verse 5. And so Jesus is set apart from any other human, from any other founder of a religion. He is uniquely sinless. There's no one like him. And then it says, God made him to be sin. So God is the subject of this sentence, and the active word is made. God made Jesus to be sin. That is, it's not that, this, this is important, because in theology, sometimes people read this, and they say that uh, the only way, the, the only way for salvation to come is for uh, is, 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 was that Jesus, is that God had to sacrifice Jesus. Something that is so important for us to understand is that we sacrificed Jesus. 
God did not sacrifice Jesus, okay? God did not make Jesus just to die. People ask, skeptics will ask questions. Well, why couldn't, why did God, it sounds like God is just as bloodthirsty as the gods of the Canaanites. And if we believe that God just had to have some kind of eternal representative die, then we are saying that just that, that God is bloodthirsty for vengeance. But it's not that. It's that sin, the wages of sin is death. And so when Jesus came, he made a conscious decision to stand as king and Lord in the perfection and glory of God, knowing that sin would put it to death. Sin would not stand for God's holy presence because sin is to reject God. And so it is, that's why when Peter and Stephen and the apostles preach, they don't say, they don't say to the Israelites, God, God sent Jesus to die. They say, you killed him. Your sin killed him. God allowed Jesus to die. He came and emptied himself of his divinity or his, his divine rights and let sin. Uh, uh, no one takes my life, but I lay it down willingly. Okay? He allowed sin to overcome him. So what does this mean? Instead, it means that when God said God, when it says God made him to be sin, that is that when Jesus died, he became the bearer of sin as a sacrifice under the Mosaic law would. It says he made him to be sin for us. So when our sin put him to death, he, he became in his perfection and his divinity the perfect atoning sacrifice for all time. I know that maybe that sounds like semantics, but it's pretty important when you get right down to the discussion of it with people who struggle with God's character. Uh, then it says, so that in him, so that in him, that word so that means God's action was for the express, the express purpose to free us from sin, and that that happens by Jesus Christ, and that we are now looked at by God as fused to Jesus Christ. So that in him, and this is, remember I said, remember we are united to him, we are united to Jesus, all of us. The blood washes over our sin, we're united to him, we become a part of his body. And so God sees Christ when he looks at us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That The word um, be, might become is ginomai, it means to experience a change in nature and enter into a new condition, to become something, specifically the righteousness of God. Now, this is what's interesting. That word ginomai is what's called the um, aorist tense, which suggests a sudden event, not a gradual process. Okay, so the moment that we are in Christ is a, God said, let there be light. We are in him. And we receive righteousness. That is uh, juridical correctness from redemptive action. Okay, that means like in a judge's eyes, the book is wiped clean. All the accusations are gone. There is no condemnation. We're redeemed because Jesus took our sins upon him and we take upon us his righteousness which comes from God. And it was this righteousness that Paul sought with his whole life. Paul expressed the desire to, in Philippians 3.9, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through faith in Jesus Christ. A righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That's what Paul lived his life for. That's atonement. A righteousness that comes from from God. That's 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Or 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ died for sins once for all, 
the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Atonement. That's what 521 is all about. Someone in our place for us. Verse, verse 6, chapter 1, or verse, chapter 6, verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And so here, Paul the preacher is kicking in. He's appealing to them. He says, don't receive God's grace in vain. This is the ministry and the message that has been given to you. Don't receive it in vain. And to receive it in vain would mean that though they had been pardoned and cleansed by God and have been given a responsibility to share the good news of reconciliation and atonement, they do nothing with it. That would be to receive God's grace in vain, to continue walking in the way that they had walked, to continue living enslaved as they had been enslaved, to continue breaking the world in their own sin. If they stayed silent, if they didn't change and transform, they would be receiving God's grace in vain. There should be good fruit from their ministry to others because of what Christ had done. And it's an urgent matter. He says, now is the time. Today is the day. We can't put it off. We can't wait until the time is convenient or when we, when we feel like we're worthy or that we're gifted enough. And Paul, is, he's citing Isaiah 49, verse 8, which is the prophet's declaration that there was going to come a time when God's favor was going to be such that there would no longer be any more waiting. And friends, we're living in that time. We're living in that time. There's a, and, and I know we're waiting for the second coming, but we've already received his kingdom. We've already received our inheritance of, in, in Christ. The Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing that. We looked at that in the first part of chapter 5. So now is the time. Today is the day. We can't put it off or God's work in us could be in vain. He's not merely working in us, for us, but for the sake of his ministry and the interest of his message that we would be Christ's ambassadors. So let's bow our heads and ask him to, uh, to uh, lead us that we would not live um, and receive his grace in vain. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would put it in our hearts, the compelling love for Jesus, that, that we would receive from heaven the fullness of you, afresh and anew, even tonight, that uh, all of the fullness of you who, who was bestowed in Christ would, would fill us this evening by the power of your Spirit, and that we'd be compelled then to love, to live our lives with love for you because of the love we've received from you, to share your message, to speak your words, to become ambassadors and reconcilers on your behalf. We thank you for the great price you paid through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, for standing in the way of sin, allowing our sin to, to do its work, allowing the tool uh, of, of, of our choices, a tool of death, to overcome you, for laying down your life willingly, and then taking that tool and making it a tool of redemption, a, a sign of the new creation that you are bringing about all around us. We pray, God, that you'd use us in that grand plan of redemption and salvation for others around us, that you would, you would send us um, as ministers of your kingdom, representing your interests and speaking your message. In Jesus' name, amen.